welcome back to Two Pastors and a Mic. My name is Corey. And I'm Shanik. And we're glad that you're joining us wherever you are today. If you haven't already, you can go to Apple Podcasts. Go scroll down. There's stars. Give us stars and write a review. We would appreciate your feedback. And if you don't want to do that, since we say that every single week and very few of you actually do it, no judgment, no pressure, but share this on your socials. Share this podcast or this episode with a friend. Text it and say, hey, what do you think about this? This whole series. Start a conversation. Yeah. We are part four today of cow tipping. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope it enlightened you. I hope you've thought about certain things differently. But before we get into the last week. Yeah, I got the question of the week week for you. You can start. What would be something or the main piece of advice you would give your 18-year-old self today? That's a very good question. Actually, it's twofold, but I think your answer is going to be very similar to my answer. So I'm going to give you just a different one. I would tell my 18-year-old self to just continue exercising and eating healthy all the way through. Like, it's not worth it. And I say that because as a 35-year-old- Yeah, I'm asking you why you're- I'm getting ready to ask you why you were saying that because that sounds strange to you because you- I feel like since I've known you, you have. I have. Yeah, just continue. It's the best advice. And I'm, I'm giving this advice as listeners like- I can't tell you how many times people have say say to me, I can't do that anymore, or I wish I would have never give up, or it's so much harder to lose weight in my 30s or 40s or whatever. And if you just sacrifice, people are like, I don't have time for that. Yes, you do. You make time. Your health and longevity is important. And I'm a big proponent of it. I'm in a, I'm in a group with a bunch of my college roommates, and two of them are in this journey of losing weight. And they just talk about how hard it is, how hard it is. And, and they constantly are saying, I wish I wouldn't have just given up over the last five years because they're in their mid thirties and they're trying to lose. Both of them are trying to lose like over 30, 40 pounds. And it's like, man, if you just never give up at an earlier age and that's not encouraging to half of our listeners who are not that, but Hey, I encourage you to start your journey and get to a place of longevity. Yeah. Start today. And it kind of goes along with what I would say to my 18 year old self, start investing. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, like you just said, I don't want to let anybody, feel guilt or condemned or shame because maybe you haven't invested or like you, you haven't worked out or took care of yourself, um, in, you know, what you eat or how you work out, things like that. But I think the key is to just start. Yeah. You're never too old to invest. I mean, it's going to be one of those things where you can look down the road five years, 10 years, and then you're saying it then like at least start today where you're at. But I would tell my 18 year old self to invest and as hard as it would be then, because of course, 18 years old, I wasn't making hardly anything. Right. But even if it was 50 bucks, $50 a week, like that would have been or a $50 lot for me. even a month. Yeah. That would have been a lot for me. But man, if I could have done 50 bucks a week, 2,500 bucks a year, started at 18, how much further along I would be now at 42. And yeah. then how much more I would have at 62 well, when, when I want to retire. When did you start retirement? I started at 32. 32. And I wish I would have started 18, yeah. even 22. <laughs> yeah. I didn't start till 25. And that was still considered late in the game when you talk about compound Compounding interest. Compounding interest. Yeah. And I think, and I think the key is this, and for what you said and what I said, and maybe this will help you as a listener, because it is hard and it is difficult. I've been there with the weight battles. I've been there with financial battles, but at the end of the day, it's better to choose the pain of discipline than it is to choose the pain of regret. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, there's going to be a time in your life one day that you're going to look back and I don't want you to be regretful. I want you to kind of be excited to pass that legacy of discipline down to the people in your circle, your family, your life, 
So yeah, choose the pain of discipline over the pain of regret. I'm glad you said that because you are, it's not like, okay, I'm, I'm a bad example in terms of losing weight because I've just stayed consistent for 20 years of working out being 34 and yeah. still fit. But you're somebody that's actually lost over 80 pounds. Yeah. Which is, I didn't do anything in my twenties. I yeah. was focusing on getting married. I got married. We start having kids and that's what I wanted in life mm-hmm. to be married, to be a husband, to be a dad. And so honestly, I will, I, I tell everybody then I was fat and happy, but then when I got to the end of my twenties and I looked back, I'm like, man, I was ha- fat, but not very happy. <laughs> and so I got to change something about this. So yeah, at 29, I started to, to change my eating habits, my lifestyle. And it's like, I'm not going to live my thirties like I did in my twenties. And you and lost how something much about weight? In 80 how pounds in 180 days on the P90X program. You did and, it twice. Yep. Two rounds of it. And for about eight years, I had actually maintained, kept the entire amount of weight off, did pretty well. I actually had plantar fasciitis and not to give a lot of excuses, but when I was 37, 38, um, so I couldn't do cardio, working out was tough, playing basketball was tough. And then I wasn't as strict as my diet because I was working out so much I didn't have to be. Um, but now that I'm in my 40s, um, I still work out like crazy every day, still play basketball, but uh, I definitely need my need to get my eating in check. I but put you back still on look, about 20 pounds. You look pretty good. Decent. Yeah, you're getting there. Yeah. It's all a journey, baby. <laughs> Ride the journey. So this is week four of Cow Tipping. We're going to address this topic It's very similar to the topic we did a couple weeks ago on the episode when it talks about, you know, people are like, oh, God's grace, but there's also God's truth as if they're antonyms. They're not antonyms or synonyms. Today's conversation is very much similar. We're going to talk about this idea that God is love, but you'll always hear Christians, especially some Christians say, but a big but of the Bible, but he's also just right as if God's justice and God's love aren't synonyms, right? They can't just say God is love, period. Mm -hmm. And look at him through that lens as an amazing, incredible, graceful, merciful, loving father. They also have to feel like they need to throw in this idea of God's justice. Mm -hmm. And they have no idea what God's justice is because they look at it through the lens of their 21st century American Mm -hmm. viewpoint instead of how God justice actually is. And when we talk about justice, you'll always have people. We love this idea of God's grace for ourselves, but God's justice for other people. It's, it's always, it's all about God's mercy for us and all about God's wrath for you as if whatever you want to talk about this conversation. So we're going to break this down, this episode into two conversations, one around God's wrath and one around God's judgment. And I promise you, this might be new for some of you. This might be thought provoking. This might be, you might totally disagree. That's fine. We're going to give you some actually study keys so that you can go and do your own research on these two conversations so that you recognize we're not actually crazy off the wagon. Right. So let's just start at a very a very foundational level um, in just this word wrath, because we see it when we read through New Testament scriptures and even some Old Testament, we see this word in our Bibles. And so we um, immediately think about wrath as in a negative connotation. But let, let me just explain it to you this way. If you actually look up that word in the Greek, it's the word orge. And it's number 3709 if you do a search. But it's actually where we get our English word orgasm. Let's go. And if and if you spend a little bit of time thinking about that, like what that is, or maybe not. No, yeah. <laughs> Take a lot of time about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so then 
this idea of wrath might change a little bit. Your perspective might shift because then the wrath of God might mean just this passionate desire for us because the idea of wrath as in a negative connotation that God is angry and he's going to bring judgment upon us. It's a wrong view of God because even God says of himself, and you can look this up, Isaiah 27, verse four, God himself says, I have no wrath. Mm -hmm. So does he, or does he not? Because here he says of himself, he doesn't even have wrath. Yeah. And maybe translators and people in this conversation have misapplied truth and stuck this word in because they didn't understand because wrath of God is very different than wrath in God. And there are consequences for sins for your own actions, but the solution for sin is for us to turn back to God, look again at what repentance even is. It's not repenting of your sin. It's looking back at the law and looking at it through the lens of Jesus, the law of love. See, consequences come from our own anger and rejection of God, not God's rejection of man. In fact, the wrath of God is simply the human experience of reaping what we sow, not recognizing his permanent presence in our lives, and therefore then thinking in our own minds that we're separated from God. It's not that God is angry at people, but that people's evil causes them to be angry at God. Moreover, because when a person is punished or tormented on account of his evil, it seems to him that it is God's doing. Therefore, in the word, we find anger and wrath, even evil, attributed to God. And it's not necessarily what we think it is. In fact, Romans 1 talks a lot about this. You know, three times in the scripture, it tells us that God gave people over to their own sins. It's this idea of sowing and reaping. Right. And I love that you said that earlier. And man, you talk through a lot and we can break that down even more. But one thing I do want to break down, you actually said the wrath of God is simply the human experience of reaping what we sow. And we do still live under that principle of sowing and reaping. If we do something stupid and sow stupid, we're going to reap stupid. If we, you know, sow evil actions or whatever it may be, something contrary to walking out what it means to be a son and daughter of God, we're going to reap these negative consequences in our life. And yeah, Romans one, we, God gave them over to their desires, their sins, their sinfulness, things like that. Basically meaning, look, we have free will. If you're going to choose to do, um, do these things, then there are going to be natural consequences that you're going to have to suffer with. And so, yeah, so it is about sowing and reaping. Yeah. God's wrath oftentimes is like Romans one, giving people over it's, Hey, I want to go and do stupid stuff. I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of that choice. We talked about that in episode one of this entire podcast is you have permission. You have permission to go and sin. We're not saying, oh, you should go and sin in your life. Why? Because it reaps and causes destruction. Like if you want to go and act like an idiot, God will still love you the same because his love is unconditional. Right. But humanity won't. And you'll lose a voice and you'll lose respect and you'll have to deal with the consequences of your own selfish actions in yeah. whatever season you're in. And right. there's there's real responsibility that is necessary for us as 21st century modern day Christian Americans to recognize that, wow, I have power to bring heaven into every season and every space I walk into, or I can live selfishly and do whatever I want and reap the consequences of those choices. I love what Keith Giles, Giles I, I think is Keith Giles is how you say it. He says, the wrath of God is not talking about 
what God does to the nation of Israel in AD 70, but the fruit of their own refusal to listen to the message of Jesus, urging them to turn away from their desire to violently overthrow the Romans because it will lead them to destruction at the end of the age. Unpack that real quick. Yeah, so he says the fruit of their own refusal. It was their choice not to leave Jerusalem when they saw the Roman army came in. Exactly how Jesus said it was going to take place. He warned them to flee, to get outside of the city. And the ones that did, like the 1.2 million Jews that left, they actually were were saved Mm -hmm. and didn't have to face literal destruction as the Roman army sieged the city, burned everything, destroyed the temple, not one block left on another, just as Jesus said. And really, so when you talk about wrath of God, that's what it means. It's facing those consequences. And because is there such a thing as wrath of God? Yes, but it can't be a picture like you maybe have in your head when you think or say wrath of God, because it's not looking at God as someone who's angry or out to be, um, you know, retributive. Yeah. He's not out to get you. Right. He, he's not, he's not doing that. Now I think it like what you said earlier, it's this idea of a loving father and are there boundaries in that? Absolutely. There's going to be boundaries in that. Just like I have boundaries with my own kids because I don't want them to go outside of those guardrails, if you will, because I know on the other side of that, there are dangers, there are consequences, there's things that I don't want them to have to go through. So I try to navigate to God to put up these boundaries. Now, do at the end of the day, they have the freedom to go outside of those boundaries? Sure. But then they are going to reap the consequences of those actions. And so I think it's the same thing with God. Is there such a thing of wrath of God? Yes. But again, it's back to consequences from actions. It's reaping what we've sowed. Yeah, it's allowing you to abuse your free will. There's no wrath in God, but the wrath of God is dealing with the consequences of your own choices to live in a way that is not righteous. And what we mean by righteous is you're permanently righteous even if you don't live that way. So awaken to it because your desires will change. And so once we understand what orge is or what God's wrath is, we have to have a conversation around judgment. And Mm -hmm. I think this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, this evening, wherever you're listening is so many Christians have misunderstood judgment, God's judgment. They'll use verses like Isaiah 55. Oh, God's ways are higher than your ways or whatever that thing is. Yeah, his thoughts that. are not your thoughts. Yeah. His ways are not your your ways. My ways are higher than yours, declares the Lord. So my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And people go there to see, hey, no matter what we have in our mind about God's not only love, but his justice and all of this, his wrath, his retribution, whatever. Um, it's so much more than what we can even contemplate or comprehend. His, his ways are higher than our ways. Thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But but I think God says that because the higher way is the way of love yeah. and the higher way is the way of mercy. We don't even sometimes have that in our thought process because we want justice for someone's wrongdoing. We want them to be, you know, whatever imprisoned or you know face like extreme harsh consequences but in this passage of Isaiah 55 he talks about this wicked person and he said let this wicked person abandon his way let him abandon his thoughts let him return to me and I will have compassion on him and I will abundantly pardon him hmm. see people they, they don't understand the context of that when someone does something wrong oh they're getting what they deserve. Or I want them to get what I they want deserve. to get. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like they need to get. So, but that's their idea of judgment on this person. And God's like, look, that's how you are, but I'm higher than that. I'm better than that. Wow. I actually abundantly pardon 
people and show them mercy. That's my type of judgment. So his context in Isaiah 55 is his ways are higher, meaning mercy over judgment, Mm -hmm. meaning mercy is what triumphs. And even in the new covenant, we're told that we have the mind of Christ. So when people use that verse to say, oh, God's ways are just higher. Well, no, you have the mind of Christ, which means his ways are higher in how he deals with and views judgment on humanity because his judgment is mercy. Yeah. And if we actually say, look, think about that, how we have the mind of Christ, all we have to do is look how Jesus lived. Mm-hmm. If anyone claims uh, to live in him, he must live as Jesus did. First John two, six, mm-hmm. like if we have that same mind, then how did he respond to his enemies? How did he respond wow. to the people that great were against him? How did he respond to the people that were actually freaking crucifying him? Yeah. Do you respond that way? Cause that's having the mind of Christ. Wow, and that's how God deals with judgment. In fact, if you want to get nitpicky, let's talk about this idea that God several times in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, talks about the fact that he doesn't judge. John 5, 22, moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. John 12, 47, if anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John three seventeen. for God did not send his Son, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God does not, or, or God does nothing as a judge that he wouldn't do as a father. And I will accept nothing in the description of God that I would find abhorrent in man. That's a quote from George, McDon- uh, George McDonald. In fact, Jesus judges taboos such as Sabbath practice and religion when it harmed people, but he didn't come to judge but to save the world, as we read in those verses, John three seventeen and in John eight fifteen, And so understanding that God didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, that is monumental for understanding truth. Yeah. And speaking of judgment, um, John 12, 32, and there's a mistranslation here. Um, the, the, the verse says, um, if I be lifted up from the earth, meaning when he's, he's talking about when He's getting ready to be crucified, lifted up on a cross. If I be lifted up, the the most most translations say, I will draw all men unto myself. But that word men is italicized, meaning the translators added it. It actually just says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all into myself. And if you actually read the few verses or enti- the entire chapter 12 and the verses leading up to verse 32, the whole idea is about judgment. So mm-hmm. the all in this passage, he will draw all judgment to himself. Yeah. Right. I love what, what Peter Hyatt said. He says, Jesus does not save us from the judgment of God. Jesus is the judgment of God to save, to save. And that goes back to John five twenty two, where he says the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. Well, all of the judgment happened at the cross, which means there's not necessarily a future judgment on your behalf, because if there is a future judgment on your behalf, then Jesus died in vain. Because all judgment happened at the cross. That is something that should free you from anything that you're scared about in your future. It's so amazing. Jesus is the judgment of God. So the judgment of God is peace and love and mercy towards you. And that is good news. That's good news. So the Greek word for righteousness is dikaios. And it also means justice. Check this out, what I'm about to uh, lay down here. The Greek philosopher Plato used this Greek word to get us to the English word justice. The Hebrew and Greek word for righteousness is the same word for justice, and yet the word justice does not appear in the New Testament. When God asks us to show forth righteousness, it's that same word justice. So what he's actually asking is for us to show forth justice. 
Psalm 15, one through five, love means to do no evil. And so isn't it very interesting that the New Testament uh, translators only translated that word dikaios as righteousness when it could also mean justice. Hmm, And if you go and look through those different places that they translated it, it would change the entire understanding of righteousness if we replaced it with justice oftentimes. Why? Because God's righteousness looks like justice and his justice is always mercy. Justice, in fact, is restoring value where there is no value. That's my favorite definition of justice, restoring value where there is no value. Jesus is not just talking about an internal righteousness, but also an external justice that touches the world. Jesus is preaching to Israel who abandoned the job to value others. Yeah, they they were judging, they were separating, they were looking down on other people instead of realizing, no, this is God's righteousness. His justice is to love them. I love that. And matter of fact, so if that's the truth, then, and if that's the case, God's justice then looks like healing. 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 What is healing? Healing. What did I say there? You're a country boy. Man, Melanie said the same thing today. I said, well, I mean, I'm going to tell you what I said, but she's like, why do you put ours in stuff? Like, it just shows how country you really yeah. are. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You I just looked am. at me so weird. Like you knew I said you said it, it wrong. And I looked at you. I'm like, wait, did I, did that actually Helene, come out wrong? You, you Let's butchered. just move on. <laughs> God, what you meant to say is God's <laughs> justice looks like healing. Healing. There we not go. Not like hell. Yeah. Think about it. That's exactly what I was going to say. God's justice looks like healing, not like hell. And there's a difference between retributive justice and restorative justice. And the justice of God is always restorative, never retributive. The unfortunate ideology around these understandings is many people in the church today love retributive justice because we love that people get what they deserve. Yeah, and so theologian James B. Torrance, he says this, and I do love this. Jesus did not die in order to condition God to love you. His love is unconditional. Hmm. Jesus did not die to condition God to be gracious towards you. His grace is unconditional. So yeah, his his justice is always restorative. And he wants you to know how much you're loved, how much grace and mercy he has towards you, but not just you. Again, let's go back to that responsibility piece. And we preached this just a second ago, and we said this about how Jesus was telling Israel um, and getting on them because they abandoned their job to value others. When you know God's restorative justice towards you and that it's love and that it's mercy. I'm telling you, you actually see every single person you encounter different. You see them as someone to love, not someone that you need to judge. Hmm. And speaking of this idea of removing judgment, um, two verses real quick. First John four eighteen, there is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So perfect love cast out all fear. Fear of what? Any kind of judgment. God's judgment towards you is good. And then 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. So you don't have to fear God. You don't have to fear his judgment. And and I know you actually preached this in a message recently yeah. in the adoption of your son. Like there can be a good judgment yeah. that a that an good, righteous judge can give. Yeah, when we were at his court hearing, the judge Your son Henry's. Yeah, my son Henry's, who we adopted, 
the judge stood up to make a declaration right before he hit the gavel. And he said, I'm making a judgment in the favor of the Rice family to adopt Henry. And that's when the revelation hit me. Like, holy smokes, this whole time I had this fearful idea of what judgment was, but the judgment was put on Christ and it was made in our favor that we're the permanent righteous ones of Christ. And I love that because it changes the way you live. In fact, I, I preached in our Xmas series like four years ago on God's justice and how God's justice looks like mercy. And real quick, as we close this idea in Matthew five forty eight, you know, he's talking about be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And Matthew translated that word as perfect. But if you look at Luke's definition of it in the same passage in Luke six thirty six, he doesn't say be perfect. Like your father in heaven is perfect. He says, be merciful just as your father in heaven is merciful because perfection happened at the cross. You and I are, are perfect. Humanity is perfect. Even if you don't live like it, that's a perfect permanent identity. But to be perfect like God the Father is to be merciful. And so what would happen in our lives if instead of looking at people as they'll get what they deserve, retributive justice, what if what if we looked at them as individuals that we could restore because we've been restored by Jesus? Uh, it's that sweet aroma that Paul talked about to the Corinthian church that was attractive to people. Is You want to be perfect, you have to realize, one, that you already are because of Christ, but it will look like mercy when it comes out of you because it'll flow out of you and it'll smell like sweet mercy to every single human being that you encounter. And so mercy triumphs over justice, mercy triumphs over judgment, and you have to understand these these th- this in really important conversation to start operating, in my opinion, like Christ. Yeah, so I really hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. I really hope that you were challenged maybe all month long as um, this isn't always an easy thing to talk about some of these issues and some of these sacred cows. They're sacred cows for a reason um, in the church because some people hold to them so dear, so tight. But at the end of the day, are we going to be people that are led by the Spirit? Are we going to be teachable? Are we really going to understand God um, for who he is and see him in his proper light like Jesus came to present him to us or not. And Mm -hmm. so I really hope that this whole month, maybe we opened up some new doors for you. Maybe we helped you see God in a better light because that's always our purpose. We want you to have a bigger, better view of Jesus and God than you've ever had in your life. And we pray and I pray that, man, just that begins to continue to explode in your life like crazy. Yeah. So be people that bring justice by restoring value to where there is no value. As we've been made valuable because of Christ. Why don't you make people valuable and tell them who they are in Christ? And as always, know this. You're loved and there's nothing you can do about it.